0: This is a HeadGum Podcast.
1: Andrew, this week's show is brought to you in part by Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon? Who are they? They make cereal. Remember how you love <laughs> kids cereal as a kid? And now you're an adult and you're like, that's not healthy for me and I'm an adult
0: and I have concerns. I mean, I do have those concerns. It does not stop me from eating the cereal. <laughs> but if somebody could save me from myself a little. I think that would be a useful service. I think that is
1: the goal of Magic Spoon. They have all the amazing flavors that you love, but without all the bad stuff. Uh, Magic Spoon cereals have zero sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only 4 net grams of carbs in each serving, and only 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and there's no GMOs. Uh, and Get there, those GMOs out of here. Also, uh, the flavors come in a variety pack with cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And I have it on good authority that you can mix those flavors like some sort of cereal wizard, which mm-hmm. does
0: sound dope. <laughs> you have eaten the cereal though. Yes, I have. I have eaten the cereal. I ate the peanut butter version for. Ooh. I guess it was lunch today. Meals. <laughs> meals kind of start to lose, they come unmoored from time, and then it doesn't. I eat like three of them a day, but and one of them today was the peanut butter <laughs> flavor of Magic Spoon. And yeah, it, it tastes like peanut butter, don't you know? And uh-huh. but it, but it was less like in your face, super sugary mm. than like a peanut butter, a, a peanut butter cereal that a cartoon might sell you. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, 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 there you go. Uh, but you, but it's tasty. It's no Stacy I liked it and it right. stayed crunchy in milk for a good long time which hey. is a big which is huge a huge thing for me.
1: If that's a big thing for you the listener, you should go to magicspoon.com/overdue to grab a variety pack and try Magic Spoon today. Be sure to use our promo code overdue at checkout to save $5 off your order and Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. Remember, Get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash overdue. Use the code overdue. Save $5 off. Be a cereal wizard with Magic Spoon. Welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the
0: books you've been meaning to read my name is Craig my name is Andrew and we're back again with another episode every week they say we're not going to we're not going to be back this time but every week we prove them wrong the haters
1: yeah haters this episode's for the haters
0: <laughs> this one's for the haters i just think our our podcast should be more adversarial like we should Ooh. have a like a I grumpier don't. relationship with I our listeners i don't think it should whoa yo Dang, how are we ever going to get
1: through this disagreement? Um, through nuanced uh, research and discussion about why people might feel the way that they do.
0: That sounds stupid. And you you sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: Uh, this is our book podcast. One of us reads a book and talks to the other person about it. And usually it's a book we haven't read before this week, I read The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemisin. It is the third book in the Broken Earth trilogy. Finally, we're going to break this earth this time. Break it wide open. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read the fifth season in ep- for episode 285 and The Obelisk Gate just a few weeks ago for episode 454. Uh, I was pretty pumped to
0: get back into this one. Uh, it's was... nice to be able to finish a series for the show because we we can't always like justify reading every book in a in a series that we start. Yeah, she did us a real favor by winning awards for each book in the series. <laughs> That's, yeah, come on, everybody else needs to make sure that each of their books is equally critically acclaimed. So that we... <laughs> um, this one what
1: came out in twenty seventeen mm-hmm. um, won the Hugo Nebula Locust Awards. Um. And is kind of, from what I can tell from the author's note at the end, what Jemison is kind of crediting as, like, the transition into her, like, now uh, incredibly well-acclaimed, well-known full-time career as an author. She was still working as a counselor, I believe, uh, during some of the publishing history of the first two books. And she had started, like, a Patreon Uh, to support her writing. And she also mentions in that author's note that in the run-up to this book and and some of that Patreon funding allowed her to focus on the last few years of her mother's life and that this book and the series in particular, she's really ruminating on motherhood um, as she like takes care of her mom and goes through that whole transition. um, Mm -hmm. And then transitions into now N.K. Jemison, the incredibly well-known successful author, um, and that's all she does. Um, it's just an interesting little perspective on like coming to the end of a trilogy, but kind of opening another chapter. You know, book metaphors. Yeah, kind of no, thing. that's
0: good. I like that.
1: Um, <laughs> do you have any thoughts on like closing series, third entries, or not? Whatever, like the last book in a series. As we get in,
0: yeah, because we we talked about the sec like entry number 2 in a trilogy yeah. for the last episode where we were talking about the second book uh wouldn't you know and <laughs> how those they have a really tough time because like a a first entry is sort of your exposition and you tell a story that kind of feels self-contained. Maybe it feels that way because you're not always sure that you're going to get a chance to write like further books in the series. And so as a kind of be a thing that draws people in, makes them want to learn more, but also can stand on its own. And then books two and three, often seem to be like another like narrative unit together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it is easy for a second entry to feel kind of shapeless or like the whatever like dramatic tension or, or like narrative peak hits toward the end can feel a little artificial just because it like thrown in there because it has to be and not necessarily because that's the best place for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, the, the third book in a trilogy, I feel like it, it has an easier time both because you are ending a thing. And I think ending a thing is easier than writing one big chunk in the middle that just continues. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Um, you get to, I don't know. You can talk a little bit about whether this book does this, but I think it is easier to, uh, make like references to the first book and, you know, comment through that on like how far we've come and like Mm. closing some loops. Mm. um, yeah, yeah, it's I don't know, you and freed of the need to write anything else about these characters, and this this is how it is is significantly different from a first part, but but freed of the need to use these characters in the future, you are maybe a little more unchained to like kill all of them or like <laughs> change the status quo in some in some way that wouldn't be satisfying if, if the story needed to continue, but is satisfying to like end a thing. Yeah, you know? that's
1: yes, that's, I think that's probably fair. Um, so we, we will probably not be doing, you know, much more info on Jemison on this episode. You can go back and listen to those previous episodes. Um, I'll do a kind of 10,000 foot view of what the series is up to in just a second, but you're right on the money. My, my feelings about the obelisk gate, the previous entry, were that it set up some cool stuff, but it its own internal narrative arc just kind of felt like the stakes were pretty low. Mm-hmm. They were, and I don't think that they were low. The characters believe that they were very high stakes, <laughs> um, but like. Compared to the first book, and compared to what it is clearly setting up in the third book, that's a weird thing that middle books have to do, which is like they are telling you that the next book is going to be even more important.
0: Yeah, I feel like they're This is maybe something I'm just making up. I feel like second books are prone to like MacGuffinitis because you need you do sometimes need to manufacture a thing to make that second entry have a narrative shape while you're also and and that's not to say that mcguffins aren't like prevalent throughout fiction but (laughs) i do think in a second entry it is more common for those seams to show through a little bit i don't know has that been your experience
1: uh i think that when when it really i'm trying to think of of an example but i do think that there can be entries in the middle of a trilogy where you have to you introduce something just to move characters from place to place or to or to change the situation but it's not ultimately something that matters in the in like the grand scheme of things and I think that's mm-hmm. what you're talking about in this one there the obelisk gate didn't really I don't think it suffered from a I do think that the Community of Kastrima, where our protagonist Esun spends all of her time in the second book. It has a like a beginning, middle, and end in that book, and then we are moving on. And that is interesting in the story of that community, but I also think my takeaway was like, I know we're not going back here. Like, this. It was fine to spend time here, but I'm really eager to get to the part where we're, like, pulling the moon out of space with our Earth mm. magic. Like, come on, let's get there.
0: <laughs> and that's, it's just jog my memory, that that community, Kastrima is the one with all the people who sing really high. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a way homer.
1: Just think about that one for a little mm-hmm. bit. Just, just let that sit. Yeah. It's like a fine stew. You just gotta let it simmer.
0: Mm-hmm
1: um let's talk about the world of these books before
0: we get too far afield here's what i remember yeah about oh yeah the why don't you tell me what you remember what i remember is that in this world periodically the world just ends <laughs> and people are, aren't always sure what the reason is or or and i recall it being kind of an open question as to whether these things are like inevitable or if they are like human caused mm-hmm. um but because the world ends periodically um people are people in this world are like very wary of the magic users because they're like simultaneously like protecting the world but also destroying it sometimes mm-hmm. is that right mhm and then that's what i remember <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay yeah so that's a that's a good thing to start with the magic users that we meet at the beginning of the series are called Origines. they practice it it is magical it is supernatural um i in thinking about the third book where we deal a lot with what they just literally call magic and is somewhat different from orogeny as a earth ability hmm. i found myself categorizing the earth stuff as more as like a X men power like it's a thing that you can do and control but it's like kind of built into you as a person like the in a way that's different from like I could do magic I, it's like know. magic
0: magic you can learn and erogeny oh. you have to have from birth or well magic <laughs> Okay. Orogeny is um, <laughs> manipulating... Like, can I just equip an Esper and no magic, even if I didn't no. know magic um, before? Oh, here's, here's the difference. Orogeny is the ability
1: with these like little organs that are in your head and I think everybody has them, but You know, origins have better ones than others at the base of their brain. You can not only detect and feel like seismic events and energy, but you can manipulate thermal and kinetic energy to like stop an earthquake, cause an earthquake, turn someone to ice by removing all the heat in their body. Like, those are the things that you can do. Those three things. Yeah, with some change, you know, with a few, uh, you know, variations on that. And in the first two books, you know, we are set up that these origins are controlled and detested by society. They are a marginalized class. If a community, uh, if your community learns that you might be an origin, they are probably going to try to kill you. Because without any sort of training, if you get like threatened or otherwise have some sort of emotional outburst, you are likely to just kill a bunch of people by accident. Um, let alone the fact that there's all sorts of cultural stories and history that teach people how dangerous you are and that you're likely responsible for all the seasons that show up every few years and kill everybody. Um, but maybe you get sent to this like place called the Fulcrum and you get trained to be good at it. And so your oppressors are like giving you a purpose that like makes you a cog in the machine. And then some origins are like cool with that because they're like, well, at least I have like some security and a reason to be here. And even if people hate me, at least I know what I'm up to and are the main characters that we spent time with. They're like, this sucks. (laughs) Like like, I was into this system until I learned how crappy it was. And now I'm going to try and overthrow it. Mm-hmm. Um, the magic system that we were introduced to in the second book. And then we spent a lot of time talking about in the third book
0: is just called magic. And it's, that's, and it's not like spelled weird. It doesn't have like nope. two G's or a K <laughs> or like, no. okay. It's just magic. And it is that's very restrained of Jemison. to, <laughs> yes, it is sort of the force.
1: It is sort of the mystical life force that binds all things in the universe. Um, it is a it manifests as like silvery threads of energy that only people who can, you know, who are tuned to it can like see and manipulate. Everybody has them. Everything alive has some of this magic in it. Um and we learn later in the book that if you put enough magic into an inanimate thing, it can become alive. Oh. Okay. Um like a cup more like like a. I mean more like a big floating rock in the sky that you pump a bunch of magic into and it It sort of has yeah it doesn't become a person rock monster no it just kind of becomes like a a rock with wants and needs
0: oh and olmec
1: a little bit like olmec yes it asks you questions um and these are not like what's what I find fascinating about these two systems together, Orogeny and mag- and the magic that we discover is that they don't innately cancel each other out, though they don't like they don't behave well together. Like if you if you really get into using magic, at least the people in the present tense of this story, um, it's because you got into using the obelisks, which are the big floating stones in the sky and if you use them too many times, you become stone and you're screwed. So, <laughs> And it can mess up your ability to use erogeny o- without f- becoming further a stone person. Um, but the magic is tied to Father Earth, who you may remember from previous entries in the series, Andrew. He's the planet that everyone lives on. Mm-hmm. And he's mad at humanity because the moon's gone. And that's all we know in the earlier entries... Of the, of the book. Do you really like the moon? Well, the moon is did like his mean? his begotten son. Like the moon is oh, like really? his child that he used okay. to have. And the moon's been gone. No, none of the living people on the planet ever remember there being a moon. And the story goes that once humanity did something to the moon, that's when all the seasons started. Okay. And so at the the end of the second book, our protagonist, Essun, she is going to, um, based on what her now stoned and deceased, unclear, he's a stone man now, I guess, um, her lover, Alabaster, was like, hey, you got to catch the moon when it flies back past the Earth, and that's going to end the seasons. Like, catch you- it and
0: put it in orbit. Do you think the... Uninhabited planets are jealous of inhabited planets, <laughs> or are inhabit Do inhabited planets have like a disease, like a d- head lice or something, and they're pariahs in the the galactic community? That's a good point.
1: We don't. Father Earth doesn't talk to any of the other planets, so I don't really know
0: and maybe he's in quarantine. Maybe they've ostracized him cuz he has all these people living it's on him. a very good killing point. The, killing the moon and making yeah. him quake and <laughs> all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I bet the other planets are pretty are like pretty cool
1: to not have humans on them. More on mm-hmm. that in a minute <laughs> cuz mm-hmm. the humans suck.
0: Um, yeah. And I just I just bet Mars is like you d- don't don't get too close, Earth. Yeah, you're I good. See coming over here and saying you see water and landing satellites on me I don't, I don't. Let's not let's not do this. Earth is the asteroid belt after Mars. I don't know. Do we have an asteroid belt in the Milky that's not, Way? In the, that's not part of like the song that I learned about the order that the planets go in. Can so you sing so. it right now, please? No. Okay. Well, all right. Mercury, Venus, Earth, then martin No, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs>
1: um okay so father earth we gotta catch the moon and so maybe the seasons will end it will probably like upend society if the seasons end right because we've got we've built this whole caste system around surviving through seasons and marginalizing these origins and all sorts of stuff great as soon as daughter nasun who we met in the second book for is like right. one of the main characters from the second book mm-hmm. um the second book ends with her killing her dad because he could never accept the fact that she was an or- an origin. She has been, kind of, she's just like forcibly adopted herself to this guardian Shafa, who used to be Essun's guardian. Um, and the guardians are a cast of people that Earth, that literal Father Earth, uses to
0: control the origins. These books rule. This uh, sounds like a like a. 8chan thread no yeah the earth controls us with these it does no literally the earth controls this cast of
1: warriors with by putting little iron stones at the back of their head yeah no that's a likely story a likely story okay um and nasun's with shafa but she has also been under the influence of a stone eater um named steel and the stone eaters are like if this book had elves in it, they'd be stone eaters. But like she was like, that's boring. I'm gonna make creatures that are like made of rock, and you don't know what they do, and they can teleport through the earth. And they, when people turn to stone, they show up and start eating the parts of the people that are stone, and nobody knows why they do it. And it's great. Stone eaters are great. Mm-hmm. Um, but this stone eater steel is really into a burn-it-all-down theory of fixing the apocalypses. So he is working on Nasun to get her to grab the moon and just slam it into the Earth
0: and just ruin everything. <laughs> um, that would probably make the Earth not like the moon as much. <laughs> no, and it might just destroy
1: the Earth outright, which I think mm-hmm. is what Steel is counting on. And so this book, which I'm, I guess I'm only just beginning to talk about now, but anyway, um,
0: it's, it's fine. It's fine. We got time all es, the time in the world. Thank you.
1: As soon is, uh, on the road with the, uh, former people, the people of formerly of Kastrima, which she had to destroy to save them. They're en route to a deserted city, um, whose residence she turned into glass as uh, revenge for their invading force on her community. Cool. Um, cool revenge. Yep. But they have to, like, you know, they have to go on a big journey, Oregon Trail style, um, to get there, which involves going through a stone forest and an evil desert. Um, it's, it's cool stuff, but ultimately it's just like, can this community get there? You know, they will. Yeah. They're going to lose some yeah. people along the way.
0: I think the the deaths would be cooler in a sci-fi landscape. like Instead of dying of dysentery, you get turned into glass.
1: It's pretty dope when people get turned into glass in these books. I mean, it's sad and scary, but also
0: it's pretty cool. Um. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I bet the difference is whether you are viewing it or whether you are experiencing uh, it. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, And Nasun's story is moving from uh this like southern uh community that she was in with shafa they have to kill these guardians who want to kill her um she's killed her father her father's gone and she needs to get to this place called core point which is on the other side of the planet that no one ever goes to so this the known world the known landmass is called the stillness. It's a Pangea. It's a supercontinent that everybody lives on Mm -hmm. on the other side of the planet. There's this city called core point where there's also just a big hole in the world that just goes all the way to the center. It's a big black hole that goes all the way to the Earth's core. Sure. Sounds rad. And no one ever goes there. No one can get there. Um, But the stone eater steel knows the way to get her there. And now soon if she gets there can harness Power in that city to summon the Obelisk Gate herself to bring the moon down on Earth and destroy it, and her motivation is really built out of this. Like she's a ten or eleven, I think. Her dad killed her brother and then never accepted her, and so she had to kill him because he was threatening to kill her. Her mother Esun left during the first apocalypse of these ser- of this story. Mm -hmm. And now all she has is this guardian Shafa um, who does love her, but she is very aware of the fact that like she will never be accepted wherever she goes. Um, People hate her just because she is. Um, What does she say? They'll just go on being scared forever and will just go on living like this forever. And it isn't right. There should be a fix. It isn't right. There's no end to it. And she has some, like, hesitation where she's like, should I destroy the world? Because I do love this guy, Shafa. He's a cool surrogate dad. And he's like, listen, I'm thousands of years old and I'm really sad about my life. And you're sort of the only person who cares for me back. And if you want to destroy the world, you go right ahead. Like, that'd be really cool. I
0: do really like that. Like, she she is... This she's deciding whether to destroy the world based on how it affects her personally, yeah. like about what it does to anybody else who might be living on that planet at the same time. Well, Which and is it's a very like 10 or 11 year old thing to yes. feel, I guess. Is and like, she, she has this yeah. stone
1: eater, you know, speaking to her being like, yeah, they, there's no way out of this. Um, and the stone eater also tells her later in the book that the earth father earth like created the stone eaters as punishment for them because stone eaters don't die either and so they are like cursed with this eternal life um it's sort of they're not vampires but there is this element of like what would it be like to be forced to live on like a geological timetable but mm-hmm. still have interpersonal relationships and mm-hmm. like what would that do due to how you felt about people around you, and, and that being a form of punishment is a thing that people talk about a lot throughout the book. And so Steele's yeah, like... Know, if I had to know you for like oh 10,000
0: years, <laughs> I don't know how that would go. <laughs> I mean, based on like the first, what, 16, 17 years, yeah. it's been okay, but that's that's the drop in the bucket. Yeah. Geologically
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Mm. Yeah. Seventeen thousand years?
0: Mm. Who can say?
1: Well, over if I mean,
0: overdue will probably
1: still be going then. So
0: when we when (laughs) we get to our ten thousandth episode, we will. (laughs) This is ground we can cover.
1: Oh my god! Yeah. Um. And there, what I really like about we, I'm glad you you actually kind of mentioned the personal nature of Nasun's decisions because there's a couple pivotal moments along her journey where she almost. Changes course because she thinks that like she's worried about what's going to happen to Shafa like she is very motivated by um, this one interpersonal relationship that is actually like somewhat successful in her life and if she is thinks that this will harm him um, then. She doesn't want to do it. And actually, that's when Steel brings up the, hey, listen, not only are the Stone Eaters thousands of years old, but also the Earth made the Guardians thousands of years old also. And don't you think that this sucks for him? Why don't mm-hmm. you just blow up the Earth and help him? You mm-hmm. love him so much. Come on, kid. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so like her story is this like fascinating um it's almost like, and the, the whole, actually the series, and this is a, like, it's not a, we have to, hmm it's not not a save the world story, mm-hmm. but every version of saving the world in this universe involves destroying it in some way. It involves either destroying the status quo, it involves literally destroying the earth and just who knows like doesn't matter what happens on the other side everything that's here now is bad we gotta get rid of it um there's no like it's not like a saturday morning cartoon where the autobots are like earth's cool and then uh megatron is like what if it wasn't cool and then they have to like defend the status (laughs) quo and like it always comes back to normal right Mm -hmm. this is very much about transformative change um which is something that uh Jemison has talked about i have a quote from her is it just
0: like a like different sides deciding like how much and how like transformative to be or yeah 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 a little bit because they it sounds like it sounds like ending the season system at all would would burn something down? Yes, it would, but it doesn't. <laughs> it still doesn't. I feel like it doesn't rise quite to the level of destroying the whole planet by crashing the moon into it.
1: Correct. Um, yeah. And there, there is a third option. Uh, I know. I think I mentioned on the last podcast that I've watched Jemison play some Mass Effect on Twitch, and so I'm aware <laughs> of her. Like, knowledge of narrative, like, kind of game design option. There is a third option that emerges at one point where where Nasun's like, Well, I can't just save. Like, she, the the obelisk gate is so powerful that you can't just make it do like one tiny thing. Like, if you do something with these networked magic stones in the sky, it's gonna be a big effect. It's a huge Mm -hmm. AoE blast of something. And so she's like, Well, I could. Save Shafa by turning everyone into stone eaters. Like, maybe that's the option. (laughs) Like, maybe I make everyone immortal rock creatures rather than let this man I care about die. It feels
0: like a bad compromise to me. I mean, I'm not there. I don't know.
1: Yes. Um, Jemison says about endings... Um, what I wanted to play with was the concept of when do we consider an apocalypse to have begun and ended? Because in a lot of cases, what's considered an apocalypse for some people is what other people have been living every day. It's not the apocalypse. It's just an apocalypse for you. And so when people say the world has ended, but uh, soon's world has been ending for most of her life, this is nothing new. So that—that that is her response to like, is this apocalypse fiction? Like, what's going on? She's very aware of Creating a world where there are perpetual apocalypses means that you can get away with playing with the definition of apocalypse.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so I'll come back to Nas. Oh no, let me just shout out. There's a cool scene with Nasun where she uh encounters some dead sieve technology. Ooh, um, which is the term for dead civilizations and from like
0: pre from previous seasons. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, But from before there were even these apocalypse seasons from just when the world was a little bit more stable and this advanced civilization had like crazy like plant tech like it's Mm -hmm. like magic infused organic material technology. It reminded me of that book uh, Dawn by Octavia Butler I I read I think it was Dawn where they were like. There were, like, lifts and subways and stuff, but it was all, like, plant creatures. Like, everything Mm -hmm. was alive. Um, (laughs) And she goes into the earth. She encounters what is called a vehemule, Andrew. Excuse me? A vehemule? Take the word animal and vehicle and
0: smash them together. All right. Yup. I'm going to be thinking about a better, (laughs) maybe not better, maybe a different way. (laughs) To say that. Uh, And she takes a vehicle
1: through the center of the earth to get to that core point place where she does literally stare at the molten silver iron core of the earth. And it like sort of talks to her and tells her how angry it is. And it's just a really, I don't know, it's a very striking visual. It has all sorts of like human faces. It's very Dante. Like there's a bunch of people's faces in the molten metal mm-hmm. because apparently it's just been like
0: collecting people and jamming it into itself yeah that i mean that's the best way to make anything creepy too it's just to put people's dead faces in. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah it's it's sick it's pretty good i played a lot of castlevania games
1: <laughs> it felt and it felt like the encounter with it in um wrinkland time like it's just it's kind oh, of like sure, unknowable yeah. thing that is a very different type of sentience which is kind of cool mm-hmm. um i'll quickly mention how the soon plot works cuz then i want to get to what i think is really fresh about this book and what surprised me about it as a third entry the soon plot is the one i mentioned earlier that is sort of like a, an organ trail um community on the run uh or on the migration story and her big, her her like recurring plot is like, am I gonna leave this community to go save, to go find my daughter, and go save the planet? Theoretically, yeah. Because
0: re- remind me, like, where she falls on the the like ending the seasons versus destroying the world, like spectrum. Like, what is what is her grand design for all this? Stuff? Her her plan is that by
1: catching the moon. Um, lassoing the moon it's a wonderful lifestyle she will uh, make father earth like happy again or appeased and these really awful seasons will stop it will probably not end the immediate season that they're in which there's lots of ash in the sky there's acid rain it's pretty bad out there but it will stop them moving forward um, and she, she thinks that's a good plan, but she does have to like get away from this community that she has become a part of that despite her like kind of worst intentions, people care about her and she cares about whoops. them.
0: whoops Um, she is it's, also, it's, I'm glad that her plan, her plan is shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, you know, she went to kindergarten. She's seen the posters on the wall. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we get kind of a rogues gallery of characters who support her that ultimately kind of a number of them show up at the final battle with her, even though they don't really do anything because it's too dangerous for them, but they're there. Um, And she ultimately, again, wants to also like, save her daughter somehow um and so that i think that this plot is honestly like i thought it was interesting and i really do like as as a character it's the most what i found to be the most conventional of the three main plot lines just mm-hmm. because it was like yeah we got to get her to the thing and we got to get to the place and then she's got to decide what she wants to do like that didn't it it was enjoyable to read and it was nice to like Meet some new characters to get reintroduced some characters from the first book, but it wasn't the as surprising as some of the Nasun chapters were, and the Hoa chapters, which I'll talk about in a second. You, you have a thought. so
0: it, no, just as soon as the the protagonist from the first book, right? Yeah. like the, yeah. the one where part of the book is her when she was young, and then the part of it is her when she was older, and you don't know that they're the same character until toward the end. Right? Correct, am, am yes. i remembering that correctly. Yep. Totally correct. Yeah, I'm like. I don't know what other story to use as an example, but I do think there there have been other stories I've read where I think maybe the author gets more or, or maybe just the story runs more toward characters who are like secondary or tertiary early on. And then the. The earlier, like main character, starts to feel a little like an afterthought.
1: <laughs> well, and, and
0: you know what I mean. Like, yeah, maybe sometimes maybe the author realizes they're more interested in other characters than they were in the original main character. I don't know. Like she, the way you're describing it makes it feel like her decisions are like the, the potential impact of them is just smaller than what Nasun can do by like picking the way the world gets destroyed right Uh, it's not necessarily that they are
1: that they would have less impact on the world but as the reader as me craig the reader i felt like there was a a more limited possibility space of Mm -hmm. where esun's story would go okay sure like i i could tell she's gonna come up with a you know a way to get to nasun she is going to Still, end the story feeling more connected to the people around her than when she started. Um, that's also because I've spent two books with her, so like I I can predict those things. Yeah. Whereas Nasun is a bit more of a loose canon. I don't know where those chapters are going to go. And then also, Jemison has introduced the these interludes, all told from the perspective of Hoa, the Stone Eater, who uh, in earlier books attaches himself to not literally but starts following around as soon after she uses the, an obelisk for the first time because when origins start turning to stone stone eaters show up to them and start eating the stone parts of them you learn over the course of this book that that is actually a form of procreation
0: which is oh no weird
1: <laughs> oh, no. um after they like eat all of you then they can like make you again as a stone eater. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, right. The microphone didn't pick up the face that I just made but that, <laughs> that beat there, the pause was me making a face
1: and you, folks who've listened to the previous episodes or folks who've read these books may remember that at least one of the Esun perspectives. And every time we see her since the first book, her chapters are always told in the second person by hoa to her um which i you know you can i could tell in the second book hoa is attempting to relay uh essun's life to her for a purpose which you discover at the end of this book sure um so like the entire narrative is almost is like a big Pecha Kucha of him being like, here's who you are. <laughs> what? <laughs> Isn't Pecha Kucha like when you throw like a PowerPoint party and everyone like does a presentation,
0: like a 15 minute presentation on something? I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I've never heard that word before. Pecha Kucha? I Kucha? I know the concept you're talking about, but I've never heard that word. Okay. I might be deploying it a little loosely, but I stand uh, by I it. I don't know. Pecha Kucha <laughs> sounds like it's sort of a 90s <laughs> electronic pet. <laughs> Yeah, I left my Kucha in, in my locker and it made a bunch of noise and I got in trouble. <laughs> yeah, my family couldn't afford tamagoshis, but they did give me a Kucha <laughs> and it died.
1: Yeah, the batteries on the Kuchas always ran out really They're quick. Not good. Yeah. Um, so let me talk about Hoa and his story because honestly, I wasn't expecting the third book to do this like preposterous amount of world building. By going all the way back before any of the seasons were occurring and find yet another way to explore what it is for a powerful people to exploit and oppress a marginalized people. Um, so we learn that the Stone Eaters um, were created sort of uh, based on a subjugated population by the people of Anagist and Silanagist are the dead sieve that I mentioned earlier who used a mix of like science and bi- biotech and like raw magic right. uh, to build their cool plant world. And they've got all sorts of cool technology. There's lots of uh, the the phrase gene engineering is used a lot. Like <laughs> that's the best pronunciation I could come up with. But like, you know, a mix of genetic engineering and eugenics i guess like it's kind of okay. wacky I was say stuff and
0: en- engineering is right there it is right you there use that instead but the, sure gene engineering gene engineering is there um and so we yeah, I mean, and also you can't spell eugenics without eugene you could just call it eugene
1: <laughs> i guess oh no um so the people of still anagist uh, use their technology and power to um, conquer two other neighboring like societies. One of them, the Nies, I think the Thnes. It's it's a multiple pronunciations and spellings in the book. Um, they don't view magic the same way as the Agist people do. Um, these nice folks they view it as kind of like a cool thing you can do like they're a little bit more the like hippy yeah. dippy socialists who like make art with magic rather than make capitalist consumption with magic which i i, I is kind of what is happening in still Anergist, which they are using magic to power their world and all of their technology. And so it creates this consumption mentality where they're always looking for more and better ways to use magic. Mm-hmm. And this neighboring people are like, I don't know. I made some art with it. And lo and behold, the art that one of them made is like kind of a perpetual energy machine. Cause it doesn't care about like what it does with the energy. Okay. And so they conquer those people and uh they spread out as like a diaspora. I well, the way that it talks about the diaspora it reminds me of like the Jewish diaspora and, and the African diaspora. it's just an interesting way to talk about like different marginalized communities. I think the book succeed the series succeeds overall as an as an exploration of oppression by not being an analog to any one real world situation. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, I think it actually that that's one of the reasons I think these these books have really landed for folks. Anyway, these people back in the before times, um, their goal was Geo Arcanity. Andrew, uh,
0: Geo Arcanity <laughs> seeks to You're establish doing a lot of portmanteaus and stuff at me right now. I don't know how to feel about <laughs> yeah. any of it.
1: Geo Arcanity seeks to establish an energetic cycle of infinite in, infinite efficiency. Uh, if they are successful, the world will never want or strife, never know want or strife again, or so we are told, Hoa says. And so, these people in the before times, these oppressors, they create uh, Hoa and several people like him based on this uh, subjugated people, the nies, almost like exacerbating The stereotypes of them in their gene engineering. So, like, making them (laughs) better at using magic, like, breeding them to be better at it, but also, like, heightening their features and make and, like, kind of reinforcing the tales and biases that get used to justify their marginalization and this is something that we also see in the other books about the origins who are bred by the ruling classes to be like better at orogeny but that also makes them scarier and also makes them in greater need of control um so the this background story which gets chunked out throughout the book is about Hoa and the other uh, tuners. They are called. They have not become stone eaters yet. Okay, and they are being put to work. They don't even really know that they're people. They have, they have been given personhood. Really, they're like a network of folks who just like live in a building and. It, so- it all sounds like computer stuff. There's lots of talks about networks. <laughs> but really, they're like their essences and minds are communicating with lattices of floating magic rocks and stuff.
0: That sounds made up, but okay.
1: It is made up. I read it in a book. Yeah, um, that's true, I guess. <laughs> uh, but they have a Morpheus-like figure named Calenly, who is a woman who was like the
0: prototype <laughs> for them. This is a reference to Morpheus from the Matrix and not Morpheus from antiquity, right? Yeah, Morpheus. <laughs>
1: okay. Yes, Morpheus from the Matrix. Excuse me. Um, and Kalenli's like, hey, listen, I know that they want you to like turn on this plutonic engine, which is what they're calling it, aka the obelisk gate. And uh, she's like, hey, listen, I need you to understand where you came from because I was made before you and you're birds even,
0: and the bees yeah
1: and what she tells them about the subjugated people that they are uh for lack of a better word inspired by um she tells them about how the the this ruling class extracted a bunch of magic from the earth and they don't now they want to like extract more like they just have this kind of it kind of gets into some uh, like <laughs> my personal reference for it is like final fantasy seven. Like it's some, like we're extracting the life force of the earth in such a way that the earth is going to get pissed at us and like fight back. Like that's kind of the, I don't know. There's something
0: there. there no, are, I get it. I was going to like, it's kind of like what we're doing to the earth. Yeah. The earth can't fight back except to like get uninhabitable Uh, (laughs) see i guess right sure okay fine Um, i got it and these these hoa chapters
1: ultimately build towards them planning a revolution um for reasons both personal and macro of like well we are being oppressed we have we have kind of learned the ways in which we are being used and the harm that we are causing. We're not going to do that. We're going to go along with this mission and then we're going to mess it up when we're inside of it because no one else can do this, but us. Mm -hmm. And funny thing is you can't use whatever magic networking spell they want to use on the earth whilst they're standing on the earth. So they get in a vehicle and fly to the moon And they're in the moon base, which I did not expect to go to a moon base. And they kind of revolt. But the Earth wakes up and is like, oh, you're trying to mess with me, huh? I'm going to get mad about it. Uh And so the full revolution can't really happen, though the big, bad, initial, very first fifth season does occur. A bunch of people get killed and these tuners Hoa and the people like him become the stone eaters as punishment and the moon gets knocked out of its orbit. And so you learn that this is where that came from. And I don't know. It was just a rad, complete departure from the present tense of this world that I certainly did not expect to happen in the third entry of a trilogy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and it I just I yeah. can't
0: every time you say vehement to me, <laughs> I know I can't, believe, I can't <laughs> believe that you were saying this word to me. I didn't need to say at that time, but I was like, what if I said it again? Yeah, and then you did. And um, now we know. And the the the
1: like the present tense narrative boils down to Esun and Nasun at core point, um dealing with the moon. <laughs> with arms wide open. <laughs> <laughs> uh and they are you know, they, they sort of like fight as they are attempting to control various obelisks as soon networks, all of like thousands of guardians who all have rocks in their heads. Like uh, the magic of this book slaps because it's like, what, what do I need it to do? It can do this also like Jemison lays a pretty strong foundation, which allows her to like, just do some wild stuff with yeah, the powers sure. in the book. Um, And ultimately, Nasoon does end up saving the day, though there are some, you know, personal costs that come with that. Um, What else to talk about?
0: Well, I mean, just so, I don't know. Tell me about the experience of of wrapping up this trilogy. Like, do you feel satisfied? Do you feel like... If in ten years Jemison decides that it's time to come back and revisit this, are you going to be excited about it? Like, do you want to read a prequel series about like previous seasons? I don't. Just tell me, give me some wrapping up thoughts. I'll give you some
1: wrapping up thoughts. I think Jemison's done. I would be surprised if she comes back. I feel like she accomplish the the ending of the state of the world at the end of this book is about there's an element of appeasement we have appeased father earth we have not defeated
0: him we do not control him i mean he sounds mad so it it would be hard to do those. but we did get the moon back and like gave
1: him a bunch of his magic rocks back and so he's like the book ends with are we going to go out there and make the world a better place now that that is distinctly more possible? The answer to that question is yes. And the book's over. So I don't, I feel like based on what I've read about the politics Jemison is bringing into this book for her to explore the answers to that question seems like something she might not be interested in, but I could be sure. Um, I am less interested in it because I, I like that open ended nature of it. Um, I bet
0: there's a lot of good fanfic about it. I bet
1: there is some good fanfic. I think there's, okay, there's a spot in this book where <laughs> okay. um, she, it's like she just introduces a town village NPC to like show up and provide like man on the street perspective on what's going on, which I thought was a really cool thing to do. There's no one in Lord of the Rings who's just like Barry from like Grove Street, who's just like, what's up with all these hobbits?
0: Anybody hear about hobbits today? (laughs) I was just thinking about how bad I feel for anybody who listens to our podcast and has never played a Super Nintendo game. How uh, unmoored they must feel, especially when we do sci-fi and fantasy. Yes,
1: I I was just struck by the fact that she took a few pages for Asun to meet a man who... I don't even know if he has a name. Well, you might as well just call him Kevin. And he's just like... Man, these obelisks in the sky. This one feels different, huh? And like delivers some exposition to her. But ultimately is just there, I think, to be like... Yeah, the the normies in this world are freaked out. Which is kind of a fun little flavor beat. Um and I also was struck by, in the close of this... Okay, so I I was remembering from the last episode that I read somewhere that Jemison said she basically conceived of this story as one big book, even though it was published in three parts. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that, to me, helps me deal with my, like, m- initial mehness about Obeliskate, because this one delivered on yeah, a bunch of I stuff. I mean, that's... Yeah. Um... I I also think that this one because of the weight of the previous two books, the way that this book explores like themes of oppression and themes of colonialism and themes of uh, parenthood, which I've probably given short shrift in this episode, but like the ways in which different roles that you are playing help to identify, help to give you an identity and how that can be like both a, powerful empowering thing and how that can be a very limiting thing hit real hard in this book, especially after reading the first two. Um the, there's like a whole caste system in this world that like, I don't know that that gets blown up after these three books are over, but it, cause it does seem to give people like place and purpose. Um, even though we have seen the way in which that is exploited by people in power. um, so that, I don't know, that sort of sounds, as I said out loud, like some dignity of work stuff that I haven't fully interrogated as a person, <laughs> sure. um, but it's, it's kind of neat. And then I was, I think I messaged you about this. I was just struck by, there's like one reference by one character about Esun being like the hero of this story. And it is, it is made offhand by a character who is a lorist, who is interested in telling stories and passing stories down. Mm-hmm. But there is, and they not... also speak for the speak for the trees. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I mm-hmm. forgot to mention that. Um, but there isn't like a a prophecy. There isn't a someone will balance this world legacy that our characters are are wrestling with. It just so happens that these are like the most powerful people on the planet. But there's no like, oh, and we you're a secret Palpatine. Like there's no. <sighs> <laughs> But like and I, I mostly mean that it's like there's not like it, it completely eschews any sort of chosen one narrative. Um, I think that's great. Which is just kind of cool. And I think that actually maybe why it might speak to a lot of people. It helps you see yourself in these characters um, who are mostly just going about like navigating personal relationships while also like flinging rocks and trying to save the moon. Yeah. Um,
0: so, yeah, I mean, I think making, giving the reader, like, a a place to, I, like, I'm trying to think about, like, Star Wars, where you do have, like, preordained, prophesied stuff, versus, like, Lord of the Rings, where you do have characters who are like that, but your, like, audience surrogate characters are hobbits. Yeah. Who... Just kind of end up there and they don't, like, they kind of don't want to be. They're not predisposed to be, but then, you know, once they're in it, they do extraordinary things. And I think that that second one creates more interesting, like, narrative opportunities for me. And I think it's why, like, if Lord of the Rings was just a book about, like, Aragorn. Oh, man. And it's just about, like, dudes walking through the woods until they can be king again and that was all the all the books were, I don't think they would be as fondly remembered. I know,
1: I think you're totally right. And th- this know. book isn't without that kind of stuff. I This one, each of the books have had some sort of like chapter intro or outro convention where there's like text from a diary or something, right? And this one has every chapter closes with some researcher who's trying to like come up with a pattern of the seasons. And he's actually uncovering a bunch of evidence that the origins maybe are what's keeping society alive. And maybe Mm -hmm. we shouldn't marginalize them and oppress them. And people are like, you can't get any more research funding for this. Stop it. Um, which is like a neat little subplot, but, um, Yeah, there is storytelling and there is legend in this world, but we are not dealing with like fabled heroes. There's no Arthurian like character wrestling with their own destiny kind of stuff.
0: And like maybe they, maybe that is when you're a lorist writing about this, like a couple hundred years later, maybe you impose that upon this narrative structure, but it that is not the way that Jemison has chosen no, to relate no, no, no. it, which is good.
1: Yeah. It's just, and it's just interesting. And and of course, I, I've sort of taken it for granted that like there's a lot of really interesting uh women characters in these books. Many of the like heads of communities and leaders are women. Um almost all of the characters are people of color. So I think this has spoken to a a broader fantasy readership fantasy and sci-fi readership than your than the folks who have traditionally been served by the genre and the marketing of those genres mm-hmm. so all of the stuff that I've said about what I think works in these books and then also you know additional factors of representation and exploring modes of oppression which I think marginalized groups certainly feel more acutely. Um, is probably why these books have really resonated with people, and yeah, sure. Why I found them interesting, I don't know. Um, Andrew, do you ever want to get in a vehemol with me and see Father Earth's creepy
0: face? I mean, it would depend on the animal that the vehemol was made out of. <laughs> you know, like if we're flying a bird around, like cool, whatever. But if it's like a ferret, I gotta think a ferret would be like the bus of the vehemol universe because they're just like long and can fit a bunch of people on them. oh yeah like they could they're like those buses that flex in the middle yeah yeah because they're super long so they have like the accordion thing but they're ju- it's just a ferret and so, so they just do it
1: oh man now i want like future red wall mm-hmm. space wall mm-hmm. okay
0: yeah this is, this is something to think about everybody go home and think about that For a week and come back (laughs) And we'll all share what we've found Andrew thanks for letting me tell you about these books I really enjoyed them Thanks for reading all three of them It's quite an undertaking It is
1: I don't always get to read everything in a series It was really fun to do so Um, If our listeners have read these books And have opinions you can send them to us At OverduePod at gmail.com Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook At OverduePod Thanks to Amy JLH, Mark Jake, Kate GLM, Casey Jean, Ray Rebecca uh, for reaching out to us in the past week. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the
0: show, where should they go? Just should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google, and our RSS feed. We're also on Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else where you want to get podcasts. Um, we've got a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Um If you go to our homepage and you want to Support us and also read along with us. We have links to the books that we have read and the ones we are going to read. Uh, those go to bookshop.org, which uh, gives business to your local independent bookseller, so you can feel good about buying stuff from them. Uh, what else? Uh, next week, uh, our friend Camille is going to join us to read uh, Barack Obama's book, A Promised Land. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to go. I think like it's going to dip into current events and stuff, but... I don't, I, I'm having a lot of reactions to it reading it because I'm I'm also reading it and Craig and I think you're gonna read snippets. Of what it I will well,
1: be but... most interested
0: to know,
1: I have not really read any kind of like political autobi- autobiographical books. biographies yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I'll just be interested to get your takes on that as a format, um, based on on this reading. I'm kind of pumped to talk about that because, and especially because Obama occupies this like pop culture space to um mm-hmm. though that book though the book is probably not about that <laughs> no it certainly is not yeah <laughs> um cool i'm gonna go practice my orogeny andrew
0: um so i'm I'll gonna see to who... turn an animal into a car cool yes yeah sick love it like a hippo i guess it'd have to be a pretty big animal to like fit a car inside it yeah that'd be sweet yeah Anyway, I'm going to go do that. All right. <laughs> until until I talk to you next week. Try to be happy. <laughs>
1: was a HeadGum Podcast.